Well, I invite everyone to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. While you turn there, let me pray for the sermon this morning. Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would satisfy us with the truths that you have given to us, that you would encourage us with the encouragement, and that you would protect us from error. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. There is a way that Christians talk about heaven that is potentially misleading. And that way of talking about heaven is by talking about heaven. What I mean is when Christians say things like, Christianity is about dying and going to heaven, or you need to believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. Christians look forward to going to heaven. And whether we mean it to or not, this often translates to understanding that, uh, to the understanding that what defines Christian hope is that if you die in Christ, your spirit leaves your body, ascends into heaven to be with Jesus for all eternity in an ephemeral spiritual existence. In many American evangelical circles, this is the normal way to think about and to talk about the destiny of those who trust in Christ. They get to go to heaven. They get to be freed from this world. And the fact of the matter is, the Bible does not talk this way. To speak of ultimate Christian hope as going to heaven is at best theological shorthand, but at worst, it subtly communicates an anemic view of the end of all things. It causes Christians unintentionally to hold to a half-truth. Many popular forms of evangelism are framed by the question, are you going to go to heaven? Do, do you know if you're going to go to heaven? We put ultimate destiny before the non-believer as a question of whether or not they're going up to heaven. The gospel is given in terms of this is how you can be sure you will go to heaven. The ultimate reward, again, put in terms of going up to heaven. And perhaps you yourselves have always thought that way. Isn't, isn't that our eternal reward, getting to go to heaven to be with Jesus? Doesn't Jesus pave the way for us to go to heaven? Isn't the confidence of the gospel the confidence that I will get to go to heaven to be with God? What's wrong with talking that way? This morning, we will consider what is lacking when we speak solely or mostly of the Christian destiny as going to heaven. And this is not a judgment on anyone that talks that way. The average Christian talks that way. I, I talk that way. You have heard me talk that way. But this is serious business because our entire text flows from what Paul said in, chapter, in verse 16 of chapter 4. We do not lose heart. We don't give up in the face of affliction, confusion, persecution, and death. And Paul's main point in the text this morning is to provide another pillar to hold up that endurance. He aims to give another point on the horizon to fix our eyes so that we don't lose heart in the face of affliction, confusion, persecution, and death. So if we accept less than what Paul supplies, if we inadvertently adopt an anemic view of Christian destiny by the way we talk to each other or to non-believers, then we risk going without the very means that Paul and the Holy Spirit supply to help us not lose heart. 
We're, one, we're running a race, and Paul is here with a word of refreshing water, and he says, drink this. So we dare not take just a sip or skip the drink altogether if we want to make it to the end. Drink the whole cup of 2 Corinthians 5, 1-10 through 10, this morning. It's important to make sure as far as possible that nothing is missing from our theological discourse, from our witness, from our encouragement to each other. This is often the case when our shorthand for our eternal destiny is going to heaven. By meditating on the fuller picture that Paul supplies here, we will see how a robust understanding of our eternal destiny both bolsters our perseverance and helps motivate our holiness. So that's our goal this morning, to have our perseverance bolstered with the refreshing water of the word that Paul is offering. And we're going to do that by uh, taking the text in three chunks. We'll look at the hope of the resurrection, verses 1 through 5. Then we'll consider the comfort of the immediate, intermediate state in verses 6 through 8. And finally, we'll think about how the judgment of verses 9 through 10 fits into all this. So I hope you're there. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, we'll read the text in its entirety. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Last week at the end of chapter 4, we saw that all our afflictions, all our sufferings, are the means that God uses to magnify the display of, and therefore our experience of, His glory. In other words, through our afflictions, God increases our joy in Him. These light, momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And Paul continues the thought in this text by focusing more specifically on our eternal destiny. And in verses 1 through 5, Paul narrows in on a central element of that destiny to encourage the Corinthians and us to the eternal hope to which we have been called. Look again at verse 1. We know, for we know, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. If by chance... Our earthly tent is destroyed. We have a building from God. And we can see from the context that the tent that Paul is talking about is our bodies, our, our, our flesh and blood bodies. Paul switches between building and clothing metaphors as he goes down. He even mixes the two. But in verse 6 and onward, he's clearly speaking about being in the body. So the building, the clothing metaphors in verses 1 through 5 refer to our bodies physical, fleshly, mortal bodies. 
In fact, to speak of the mortal body as a building or even a set of clothing was fairly normal in theological and philosophical discourse at the time. And at first, Paul calls our bodies tents. In fact, three times, right? Three times, verses 1, verse 2, verse 4. Paul calls our bodies a tent. And he doesn't oscillate, right? He never mixes. Uh, he doesn't go back and forth between house, a building, tent, always referring to our present bodies as tents. They aren't just something we live in. They are not generic buildings. They are tents. So why does he call our bodies tents in this dwelling metaphor? It's the contrast, our present temporary earthly reality with the coming eternal reality. Paul's saying think of your body as not just a building in general that your soul lives in, but as a tent, a temporary living situation, easily set up, easily taken down. The Israelites, they lived in tents when they wandered in the wilderness because they weren't yet in the promised land. Then when they got into the promised land, that's when they built their homes. That's where they built their houses. Paul's point in this metaphor is to stress that even death is to be contextualized in light of the fact that these bodies, as they are now, were not meant to last forever. So even if the tent is destroyed, we still yet have a building, a home from God. Now, Paul's point by saying if, you know, using that uh, conditional, if the tent is destroyed is not to highlight that some tents might not be destroyed, but rather Paul's highlighting, as we've seen in the whole context, a type of death that is, from our perspective, premature. Don't worry, because this body was always temporary, right? You switch from the tent to the building in verse 1, from something temporary to something enduring. So even if this temporary arrangement is destroyed, prematurely from our perspective, even if we die young or unjustly or unfairly, it was never meant to last forever. We still yet have something permanent from God. And that something permanent is a new resurrection body. Now, when we talk of the, the resurrection body, we don't just mean body reanimated. We don't just mean your body reanimated. We mean a body that has been touched and restored by the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. A resurrection body that is qualitatively like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. In, in theology, sometimes we differentiate between resuscitation and resurrection in the Bible. Every time you see someone raised from the dead apart from Jesus, the widow's son, Lazarus, those were resuscitations. They were brought back to life but just back to the life they had before. Their bodies would still grow old, they were still subject to sickness, suffering, and they were still going to die again. Jesus' resurrection was qualitatively different. When Jesus rose from the dead, his body was of a new creation, the first fruits of a new creation, a body that had continuity with his old body, still had the scars, but would never decay or taste death. There's even strange stuff perhaps going on, possibly walking through walls or locked doors. We don't know. Jesus' resurrection body was still his body, but it was new. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star to star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So when we talk about a resurrection body, we don't just mean coming back to life, restored. We mean a resurrection like Jesus' resurrection, a body like his body, a body with a qualitatively different kind of life and power that will never again decay or die. What is raised is imperishable. God is preparing that type of body for his people. In fact, making this connection between the quality of Jesus' own resurrection body and our future resurrection body is probably why Paul specifies uh, not made with human hands. You see in verse 1, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Uh, that's sort of a strange turn of phrase. I mean, we understand metaphorically buildings were built by humans, so maybe it makes sense to speak of a supernatural building as not made by human hands, but how does that translate in the metaphor? What is it saying about our resurrection body if, that they're not made by hands? I mean, none of our bodies are made by hands in that way. It's not literal. And I think what's going on here is Paul is making a direct connection to Jesus. In fact, in Greek, the phrase not made by human hands, it's all one word, and it is not a common word. In fact, only two other times in the New Testament is it used. Once when Paul describes our new birth as a circumcision made not by human hands, and once during the trial of Jesus when his accusers said, he said he was going to destroy this temple and build one made not with human hands. And we know from John's gospel that Jesus did indeed say that. They weren't making it up. And that when Jesus spoke of destroying and rebuilding the temple, he was speaking of his own body. So the body not made with human hands is the resurrection body of Jesus. And Paul uses that key word to make the connection that one day we will have a body like Jesus. One day we will be raised just as Jesus was raised. One day we will leave the tombs bearing the scars but alive, able to walk, talk, eat, fellowship just as Jesus did again. As Paul says in Philippians, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul elaborates on this in his longest passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. We've already quoted from it, but we'll do a few more times. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When Jesus comes back, he will raise his people the same way he was raised. Those future resurrection bodies, your future resurrection body is the heavenly permanent building that Paul contrasts with our present tent. We are in a temporary body, but we know that even if this temporary body is killed, it will be raised as a permanent, imperishable body. Notice the negative emphasis on being naked in the text, right? In verses 2 through 3, Paul starts to mix metaphors. He transitions from building tent imagery to clothing imagery. He says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on 
our heavenly dwelling. So indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. We don't simply want to escape this tent. We don't simply want to escape the pains and turmoils of this body by our spirits flying away to heaven where we dwell uh, in some impermanent, uh, unbodied existence. We want to dwell in a permanent dwelling. We want to have a permanent body that cannot die and that does not have pains and turmoils. The point of putting on the heavenly dwelling is to be not found naked, right? Not escape the tent, not just be free of it. We don't want to become spirits floating in some bright ether that we don't really have any sense of, that we call heaven, no point of contact between this creation and the next, right? That's, that's Gnostic thinking. That's Platonic thinking. In fact, Paul is probably hammering this point about not wanting to be naked in part because such ideas were very popular in common Greek religion of the time. Salvation was to die and go somewhere else in a kind of spiritual existence that looks nothing like now. It's leaving your body forever. Not for Paul. He reiterates in verse 4, while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In other words, while we live in this mortal body, our groaning, that sense of longing, desire that we feel is not for freedom from the body, not to be unclothed, but to be better clothed. We long to get a better body. That's what your heart longs for. Not freedom from creation, but a more glorious, fuller, substantial creation, more fully displaying the glory of God. The Christian hope is not for the spirit to leave the body and go up to heaven. It is to put on the resurrection body when this creation is set free from its bondage. Being naked, being without a body is unwanted. It's negative in this text. That we may not be found naked. Not that we would be unclothed. Paul doesn't want to be naked. He doesn't want to be a disembodied spirit. Paul would probably prefer not to have to die, not to leave the body. He would probably like just to transition right to the resurrection body. In verse 4, Paul would love that transition, to never know the nakedness of death, but just to be further clothed in the resurrection body. When you think about the imagery of swallowing, enveloping, he uses there a lion devouring, an ocean drowning, right? That's what, that's what we want. Not an escape from bodily existence, but for the resurrection life of Jesus to totally envelop, consume, surround, and transform all bodily, physical existence. We want life to devour this mortal existence. Once again, Paul uses the same imagery in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's what's coming for believers. Your ultimate destiny is life and resurrection and a new heavens and a new earth. Your ultimate destiny is a resurrected body that cannot decay or die. And that body is both part of God's glory displayed, it will be a display of God's glory, but it's also the necessary implement for your full enjoyment of God's glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? You, 
We understand this from now. We, you need eyes to see a rainbow. You need ears to hear music. You need a tongue and taste buds to experience a taco or a steak or a piece of chocolate. It's both a display of God's goodness and glory that he gives you eyes, ears, and a tongue. And it's simultaneously the means that God supplies you for you to be able to experience his goodness and glory in this creation. So in the same way, in a parallel way, you need a new resurrection body to experience the full measure of the goodness and glory of God in the new creation. You simply aren't equipped for it yet. It is to his glory to give you a resurrection body, and the resurrection body is the instrument by which you will be able to taste and see and touch and hear all the revelation of God himself to you in that new heavens and that new earth. This entire creation now is just a pale appetizer compared with the full display of God's glory to you in the new heavens and the new earth. The present reality isn't lasting, and that's why everything about it has a bitter aftertaste. Because we long for the eternal. All our desires for glory and satisfaction in this present life, they, they are pointers. They point forward towards fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, we turn, we, we turn earthly pleasures into idols. We things to love and go after instead of God. We go after the gift and we forget the giver. But that was not the design of these things. God created his creation good. He created it to be the theater of the experience of his glory. I mean, we've never known a world untouched by sin. But one day, we will. Every good pleasure and joy in this life is meant to be an appetizer to make us look forward to unbroken fellowship and joy with God in his presence. You know how every time you go back to a pleasure, you're like, it's never as good to, as it was the first time? Right? And don't hold me to this. I can't give you a full a theological psychology. But I submit that disappointment associated with nostalgia is at least in part a function of the transience of this entire jar of clay existence. The reason things are never as good upon return is because they weren't that good in the first place. Those joys touched eternal desires in our hearts God put eternity into our hearts, and sometimes we, we momentarily taste pale glimpses of it. Those favorite joys and memories of ours, they weren't that good, but they pointed us towards something that is that good, that better reality, but that which we can only dimly see now. But it is wired into our very being to desire it as the image bearers of God. Those temporal joys made us long for and feel like we were momentarily closer to eternal joy. But when we return to them, we see, no, that, that wasn't it. They're always a letdown because they were never that eternal joy. They were always only a dim reflection that made us hunger for it all the more if we knew what to hunger for. They only ref further revealed how, fall, how far short our earthly joys fall. Right? Creation now is kind of like living in a house on Thanksgiving morning. You can smell all the dishes cooking. Right? You can smell the garlic and onion, thyme and sage. Right? And those smells give a, a, a sense of pleasure, a measure of pleasure. Right? When you first walk into the house, maybe like, oh, wow, the pleasure of the smell is great. But they're just smells. And, and after a while, they, they leave you wanting. Right? They should primarily result in anticipation. Maybe you even get to uh, lick a bit of batter or you taste some sauce. But again, that still isn't the meal. 
All those smells and tastes should never be savored in and of themselves or else they will disappoint. They should build anticipation for the meal. And that's why Paul says twice in our text, we groan, we groan in the present body. In verses 2 and verse 4, in this tent we groan. While we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Burdened, he says. There's a weight that we carry, a constant pressure that we should feel, a sighing longing caused by being in our present temporal earthly body. In this tent, we groan. While we are in this earthly body, we groan. For what? For our resurrection body. We long for it. We desire it so much, it hurts. In fact, our groaning for it is, in fact, evidence of its existence. Everyone has this longing to a degree, but not everyone knows exactly what it is they're longing for. There's twin biblical truths that we hold together. All All people are made in the image of God, and they long for eternity because God has put eternity into our hearts, but all people also reject and rebel against God so that in our flesh, no one wants Him. So do we long for God or do we hate Him? Well, both. All, all rebel sinners long for what only God can give them, but they hate the giver. It's the great tragedy of sin. We long for life, but we hate the one who has life in himself. And some people so gorge themselves on temporal pleasures that they go numb to longing for anything more. They try to find satisfaction in this present world. But you cannot find satisfaction in the present world. And if you are a Christian, you should never live like you can. For Christians, for those of us who have as clear a view of our eternal future reality as possible from the Scriptures, from looking at Jesus... Everything about our experience in life should increase our groaning. We should be dissatisfied with the present life. All Christians should be dissatisfied with the present world. Oh, how we should long to be in a sinless existence and to experience the glory of God with bodies that are equipped to handle and enjoy it. Oh, how we should long to join our voices together in a powerful choir and shake the mountains with our worship songs to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, our fellowship unbroken, together in the physical company of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not yet, right? Right now, we sing songs in a small church, and you can barely hear it outside. And sometimes, we don't know all the words or the tunes. Sometimes, we're tired or we're self-conscious, and so we don't sing that loud or we're distracted. But sometimes... Sometimes in some of those a cappella moments, the song is just right. Everyone knows it. Everyone unshackled from care of what they sound like, loud and joyful. And the music and the worship feels just a little bit like eternity. It's not. It's a little taste. You're going to need new vocal cords and a greater lung capacity to sing the songs that you will sing when Jesus returns. You're going to need new ears so that your eardrums don't explode at the mighty and rushy, joyful sounds. In fact, those new ears might need to hear new notes and frequencies. I don't know. Singing now should make you long for those new vocal cords, those lungs that don't grow tired, those new ears that can handle the roar. Right now, we have potluck. Sometimes, maybe there isn't enough food. Maybe nowhere to sit, or at least no one, nowhere to sit by anyone you want to sit next to. Right? Sometimes we get left out of conversations or we purposely withdraw because we are tired from the week. 
Sometimes the kids fight and cry, and then you have to intervene, and you're embarrassed or flustered or angry or all three at the same time. Maybe someone offends you, and you're reminded of sin. Or maybe there's a work emergency, and you're reminded of toil. Maybe there's an unexpected phone call, and you are reminded of death. But sometimes, sometimes we enjoy the pleasure and rejuvenation of food, shared gospel conversation that encourages us, revives us after a long week. We bask in the little glow of a community that loves each other and loves and is loved by Jesus a little bit like eternity. It's not just a taste. Sometimes it's a taste so good you stay hours after service basking in that taste of eternity, but then it still ends and you go home exhausted for a nap. Not eternity yet. You're going to need new taste buds. You're going to need a back that doesn't grow weary. You're going to need an entirely new body to sit and feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, together in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. Potluck now should make you long for that new body. It should make you long for that heavenly feast. We groan, not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed. The Christian hope is not to die and go to heaven and experience an ethereal existence. Heaven, as traditionally understood, the spiritual realm where we go immediately upon our death, is not our final destiny. It is not our hope. In fact, heaven, as traditionally described in modern American evangelical discourse, is very rarely mentioned in the New Testament. When you look at how the New Testament talks about the afterlife, references to the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth far, far outweigh talk of going to heaven. Once you notice it, you can't unsee it. Just by way of example, in Paul's letters, eight times in Paul's letters, he talks about waiting, how Christians should wait. Seven out of eight times, Paul exhorts or describes Christian waiting. It's waiting for the resurrection or the return of Christ. We're waiting to receive our new bodies. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. He never talks about waiting to go to heaven. About 50 or so times, Paul uses hope language in his letters, and he uses the word hope. We hope. Christians have hope. 16 of those times, it's generic, right? The context doesn't specify what the hope is. Something like God gave us hope, but it doesn't go on to say anything more about that. Only two times when Paul uses the word hope is it possible that Paul describes Christians as hoping and going to heaven. Both of those cases, I'd argue, are ultimately better interpreted as referring to resurrection, but for sake of argument, let's say Paul does mention going to heaven as the Christians hope twice. Compare that with 20 times. By far Paul's most regular use of the word hope, the hope is specified as the resurrection, the new creation, Jesus returning to establish God's kingdom on earth and God's people given the means to live there and enjoy it. Our hope is not a disembodied experience. We don't want to be less substantial. We want to be more substantial. We don't want to be released from the flesh. We want the flesh to be clothed in immortality. We want more clothing. We want something more glorious than this present creation. We want something more weighty, more significant. We are waiting for Jesus to return, to bring the kingdom, bring the city of New Jerusalem, to bring the new heavens and the new earth, and to give us resurrection bodies capable of living in them in perfect fellowship and joy with Christ himself forever. That is the Christian hope. And we ought to talk the way Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 5. In our evangelism, in our encouraging each other, this is the hope that will help us not lose heart. And this is your hope if you are in Christ. Paul says in verse 5, He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who gave us the Spirit 
as a guarantee. In other words, if you have the Spirit of God, if the Spirit has given you faith to confess Jesus has come as Savior of the world, which is, you remember, as John says in his epistle, that's the evidence. You've received the Spirit. You confess that Jesus has come as the Savior of the world. You can consider that a down payment, that faith on your part. You can consider your faith in Christ, the Spirit's work in your heart, the Spirit's work in you to produce fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can consider that proof that you will enjoy a resurrected body and all the glories of God that only a resurrected body can handle. That's the very logic of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And if you have the Spirit, that means you have faith in Christ. That's what the Spirit does. He works faith in the Son. And if you have faith in Christ, that means His death covers your sins. So they're dealt with judicially in the cosmic divine courtroom. And therefore, if your sin is dealt with, death must necessarily eventually give way. People don't die because we were meant to leave this world. We die because of sin. And since our sins are dealt with on the cross, if Jesus really did pay for our sins, our resurrection is guaranteed. And because everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ has their sins covered, everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ will receive a new body at His coming to enjoy the new creation that He brings at His coming. This is for you if you trust in Jesus. If the Spirit has given you faith, then you will one day know satisfaction for all your groanings. You will one day know the joy, the real joy, that every joy you've ever experienced was only a faint inkling of. You will one day experience the glory that every human heart longs to experience, the glory of the Creator God Himself. One day all the smells and tastes and tests will give way to the thanksgiving meal. And conversely, if you reject, if you continue to reject Christ, there will be no satisfaction for your groanings, no fulfillment of those eternal longings, no joy consummating your momentary joys in this life. There will be no glory from your afflictions. You will have spent your entire life smelling a meal, hungering for it without ever getting to eat it. Now, all this talk of resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth does not mean that Christians don't go to heaven when they die. Look again at verses 6 through 8. In fact, often, because of the overwhelming emphasis on the resurrection, the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth in the Bible, some theologians go too far. They make the opposite error. They say there is no going to heaven. There is no intermediate state. We have this life, then we die, and our souls kind of sleep, uh, unaware of anything, until Jesus resurrects us. That's also an error. Though the New Testament does not often talk about going to heaven, about the intermediate state, it does still address it. There is an intermediate state. The Bible does not teach a soul sleep. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today, today you will be with me in paradise. And Paul describes twice in his letters the experience of going to be with the Lord immediately upon his death. 
describes it as far better in Philippians, right? In Philippians, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul says that to die is gain, meaning to die immediately results in some sort of gain. Because dying is departing to go be with Christ in a more direct way than we experience here on earth. That's why it's far better. Of course, Paul also does that here in 2 Corinthians, in our text, in verses 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage, for we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There is a sense where to be alive now is to be away from Christ, right? That's why Paul says in verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Right? His point is that our current life is not lived with Christ accessible to us by the faculty of sight. Right? Notice that verse 7 is connected to verse 6 with 4, because. Now, I don't think Paul's primary point in verse 7 is an exhortation. Like, walk by faith, not by sight. Don't trust how things appear. Rather, hold fast to the invisible truth. Right? I think that was Paul's point earlier in verse 18 of chapter 4. Walk by the thing, by looking at the things that you can't see. Here in verse 7, it's, it's more a simple statement of fact. It's given as the ground for the fact that we're away from the Lord. In other words, we know we are away from the Lord because we can't see Him. While we are at home in the body, we are away from, away from the Lord because we cannot see Jesus. Christ has a body. He has a body and a location. Christ is in heaven now. And I, I don't even know exactly what that means. Or looks like. And, and I don't really think I can conceptualize it with my experience. But Christ's resurrected body is spatially located. And he isn't here on earth now. What does that mean? Is heaven another dimension? Is it a physical place far away? Is it right here but on another plane of reality that we don't have access to? I don't know and don't ask me tonight. All I know is he isn't here and we want him to come back. We're waiting for that. That's coming. But that means before he comes, to be here is in some sense to be away from him. That's why Paul says in verse 6, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And when we die and are separated from our bodies, we do get to go to heaven and to be with Christ in the meantime. As he says in verse 8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's a possibility. Right? It's possible to be dead and be with Christ before he returns. So even before our eternal destiny, even before Jesus returns, even before our resurrection, when Christians die, they go to be with Jesus. And being with Jesus is far better. Both Philippians and here, the only two clear places Paul talks about going to heaven, he highlights how being with Christ in heaven is preferable to our mortal existence. There is relief and joy that comes from going to be with Christ immediately, the moment you die. There is immediate rest and relief in Jesus' presence. Christian, if you die today... Today, you will know conscious rest and comfort together with Jesus in heaven, wherever that is. 
Today you will know the peace and presence of Jesus. But it's not your final destination. That's why Christians call heaven, theologians call heaven, the intermediate state. It's the in-between place where you rest and you wait on the return of Christ and your resurrection. Uh, to adapt an illustration from a popular writer, Christians are like a homeless person living in a cardboard box in winter in downtown Chicago. And then that homeless person wins the lottery. Millions of dollars included in the prize package is a mansion in Fiji with acres of land on their own private island. So he hops on a plane and he flies and he has to make a layover in Los Angeles so the prize committee puts him up in a nice hotel. It would be such a relief to sleep in that hotel bed after snowy nights on the street, but that hotel bed is just the beginning. It's just a pit stop. Fiji's next. Heaven is like the layover in Los Angeles. Paradise is still coming. And finally, related to both of this, look at how in both the Philippians passage about going to heaven and in our passage, Paul specifically highlights that there is work to be done while we occupy our present mortal life. We can't just opt out of living. Look at the last two verses, verses 9 through 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We make it our aim to please God because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This line, in context, almost feels like it comes totally out of left field. Why are we suddenly talking about judgment for our works. And I thought you were encouraging us with our future eternal reward, and now why are we bringing our performance into this? Bringing my performance into things is usually not encouraging to me. Rhetorically, Paul was appealing to the glorious hope of the resurrection bodies to strengthen us to not lose heart in the face of affliction, and then now in verse 10, there's, there's a shift, and Paul is now appealing to a healthy fear of the Lord in order to motivate actions that please God. What's the connection in Paul's mind? How did he get from one to the other? I think in part, at least in part, Paul adds verses 9 through 10 because of in light of how glorious the new creation is going to be and how it would even be better to depart and be in the intermediate state, there is a danger that his listeners would misinterpret this to mean there's no value or meaning to staying in our present material earthly existence. Paul has already said that all our trials are part of the means that God is using to prepare us to experience his glory. But here Paul makes it clear, not just the trials that passively happen to us, but also our actions in our earthly life are meaningful. They too are part of the means that God uses to prepare our eternal reward. Our actions have meaning in this life. And this does not contradict Paul's teaching of justification by faith. It does not contradict the idea in verse 5 that the Spirit is the guarantee of our in receiving the inheritance. The New Testament does regularly teach a judgment of Christians that includes place for reward for actions. In fact, Paul spoke of a loss of rewards, but not a loss of salvation in 1 Corinthians. There he said, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So one can indeed suffer loss of reward, but himself be saved. The point is, though this isn't our eternal destiny, though this life isn't our eternal destiny, this life still matters. We should be motivated by a desire to receive uh, commendation from Jesus and to not receive condemnation from Jesus for what we do in this life. We should want to hear from him, well done. We should strive to live in a way that our actions will elicit those words from the lips of our Savior on Judgment Day. We should want to please him. So how do we act in a way to please him? There is at least one, one answer here in the way that Paul puts together these verses. Right? Look, notice that verse 9 is grounded on, it's based, it's set on the foundation of verse 10. 4, because in verse 10, because we have to appear before the judgment seat, we make it our aim to please him. Makes sense. But you note also that at the beginning of verse 9, there's a so, there's a therefore, which is to say the action of verse 9, the the making it our aim to please him is also based on verse 8. Verse 8, we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So, therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Because we would rather be with him, we make it our aim to please him. So the action of verse 9, aiming to please God, is grounded both in the desire to be with the Lord and the fear of judgment. Therefore, Actions that earn reward, that don't suffer loss, actions that are good, are those actions that are done out of a love for Jesus, for a desire to be with him. Actions that receive commending from Jesus on the Christian's judgment day are those that flow out of a desire to be with him. They are the things you do because you want to be with him. You want to draw near to him. You want to know and to be known by him. Right? Actions aren't ultimately good in and of themselves. Our actions in this life will be judged relative to our desire for Christ. If you want to please him in such a way that earns reward, you have to want him. You have to desire him. You have to desire his presence, his goodness. You have to desire fellowship with him. Apart from this desire, you cannot please God. Apart from a longing to be near Jesus, none of our actions in this life have an ultimately good motivation. Apart from the ultimate motivation of being together with Jesus, none of our works will be assessed as good on Judgment Day. That should terrify us if we are apart from Christ. And if we are in Christ, it should give us a healthy fear. It should shape our actions. May love for Christ, a desire to know Him, to draw near to Him, may that animate all that we do together as a church. After all, it is because of this same Jesus Christ that we will be swallowed up by 
life. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the hope that you have set before us. We thank you for the return of your Son, Jesus, the new creation that you will bring, the new heavens and the new earth. We thank you for the inheritance that you keep safe for us in heaven now. We thank you for the promise that even if we die now, before Jesus returns, we will know the comfort of his presence in the present and that we can look forward to a resurrection body where we will be able to enjoy and experience your glory fully on display in that new world. Help us to lay hold of that and to not lose heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.